Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. We are uh, our second week of introducing the book of Jude. Uh, if you look on uh, the first page of the notes, very quickly, we went through this last week, the author uh, is, we're going to say it's Jude, Jesus' brother, probably his younger brother, maybe the second to the youngest. Uh, there's other options there that you could consider, but really that's the only one that, that makes sense. Uh, there at the bottom of page one, something from Eusebius recording another historian uh, right after the early church, writing about during the days of Domitian, it would be the Flavian dynasty, you got uh, uh, Vespasian, Titus, and then Titus' brother Domitian, who put John on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, he was concerned about the line of, of David taking over in Jerusalem because they'd already put down the Jewish revolt. And there's going to be another one in 135, 132 B.C.A.D., uh, but he sent for the family and found uh, the grandsons of Jude, still living in Nazareth, still farming. And once he realized that they were no threat to his empire, he kind of mocked them and sent them back to continue living in Damascus. Now that's, that's what they record in a couple places in church history, which means Jude's family continued to farm a small area. You know, we talk about every man will live under his own fig tree. Uh, you know, in, in the kingdom age, the idea, have your own fig tree, live in peace. The, that, yeah, that really breaks down to middle class. You'll all have your own yard, your own tree, your own house. You have your own place. It doesn't mean, you know, huge conglomerations of things. But anyway, that's where these, the sons of Jude ended up living was Nazareth in the area, farming their own, you know, making money to take care of the family. And they told Domitian to make enough money to pay the taxes. Uh, and that's where we see Jude. So we assume that he probably continued uh, living in Israel, which kind of comes down to these things right here. The place of writing, since his family was still there, was probably Israel. Jews probably writing the book of Jude from Israel, maybe even Jerusalem. Remember, we just finished the book of James. Uh, James wrote from Jerusalem, and he probably wrote to Syria around 45 AD. James is going to be executed, pushed off the Temple Mount, pushed not this corner, but the opposite corner right over here, pushed off there in 62 AD. Uh, Jesus' brother James, Jude's brother James was killed. And so that's right, that's going to be kind of pertinent. That may help us identify the date uh, when Jude is going to write this. Uh, the recipients, bottom of page two. Again, I'm giving you information. Some of this is uh, what we'd say investigative. It's speculation. So you, you don't have to agree with it. But, you know, somebody wrote the letter. Somebody received the letter. And it was about somebody. And it was written at some time. And if we kind of get a ballpark figure, it kind of helps us, you know, move in and out and, and, and interpret the book so we don't end up in some wild uh, speculation. At least we're having a foundation. But please feel free to disagree with it. In the book, we're going to say the, the re, it's written to Jews. First, we're going to say it's written to Jews in Israel, Jews living in Israel, because the author Jude is probably writing in Israel, uh, and so he's writing to Jews in Israel, and, and he's writing to Christian Jews, so they'd be in churches. This is clearly a letter to the church, but it also, because of, uh, Paul talks about when he writes to the Corinthians about having rights, having privileges, he says, don't I have a right to take along with me a believing wife, and meaning I'll take her along and the church will provide for her, just like you do Peter and the Lord's brothers. So right there, we see that when it says the Lord's brothers, that would be James and Jude, a couple others, but those are the ones that have books. And so we'd assume that James and Jude had some kind of traveling ministry and that they were married and their wives traveled with them. The whole point for saying that is Jude and James, based in Jerusalem, based in Israel, may have traveled at some point, 
Now, where they traveled to, we know James, assuming James wrote into Syria, 45 A.D., and Egypt, those would be the locations. And you go back and find early copies of the book of Jude uh, and who accepted it as Scripture. But we're going to assume these were Jews in churches in Israel, possibly to the north in Syria and possibly to the south in Egypt and maybe further. We don't know, but that's, it's definitely just Here's why we think it's Jews, or I'm going to say it's Jews. Is point one on bottom of page two of the Old Testament illustrations. Not that the Gentiles didn't know it, but it is full in a short letter repeatedly referring to Old Testament. Uh, Exodus is referred to, the death of many Israelites in the wilderness, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Moses' body is referred to. Now we're going to get into the apocrypha, apocrypha, the, the, the assumption of Moses. We'll talk about that in great detail at some point. But that is... In the Bible, Moses was buried by God in an undisclosed locations. There would have been angelic in intervention in the burial process, if you understand the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, then the, that's, that's scriptural, because it says it in, that says it at the end of Deuteronomy. But then the Jews would have taken that information and would have had to explain it, you know, build on it. Maybe they knew more about it. But that shows up in the, the book, The Assumption of Moses, not accepted as scripture by the Jews, nor the early church, nor the late church. In fact, the modern church, they don't exist. Um, but uh, it would have been there, and it was part of their culture, part of their understanding. Just like, you know, we don't think the Constitution is scripture, but we are familiar with the Constitution, and so we refer to it. And so it was based in a, a historical, biblical event, but kind of expanded. Uh, and the Jews would have been familiar with it. Even less likely, the Gentiles would not be familiar with it. Uh, Cain is mentioned. Balaam is mentioned. Korah is mentioned. And he's just blowing by. Them. Now, notice the book is small. The book is very short. And he's just moving through these as reference points. It's like vocabulary. Meaning if you don't know the vocabulary, we can't talk. And all he's doing is, is mentioning these situations just in passing. And, and volumes of information and background uh, uh, facts are coming into the people's minds as he shoots through this letter. So it's not someone that's vaguely familiar with the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. It's someone that has been trained in it and skilled in it. And so we assume, again, this is my base for saying it was written to Jews, but believers, believing Jews in the church, because he's talking about the church. Uh, Balaam, Korah, Enoch is mentioned, once again, a historical person, a prophet who was warning, and he's seventh from Adam. That's, that's what's recorded in uh, scripture and that is what's referred to by Jude but then he expands on it actually quoting from the book of first Enoch now these two quotes and again we'll bring it up again point D and point H reference to the assumption of Moses outside of scripture now Moses and his death was in scripture but the details of it outside of scripture Enoch is in scripture but the first Enoch and the quote is from a book that's not accepted by the Jews as scripture or the church as scripture uh that for some people, they back off. It's like, whoa, especially throughout church history, they back off. It's what do we do with this? Now, I'm going to get to the point here by the end. We're going to go and read Second uh, Peter chapter 2. And it's, it's, there's very close correlation between these two. What's interesting is Peter is going to go through so many of these details, uh, maybe his own touch to it, his own style, but he's going to refer to the same thing. But he will not mention the assumption of Moses or the book of Enoch. He, he talks around it, but doesn't go there, probably because he's writing in Rome. He doesn't touch these 
a scriptural ref- or books that are outside of scripture, probably because he's writing in Rome to Gentiles that maybe wouldn't be familiar with it. Um, and maybe just to stay away from that, you know, that literature. Uh, and then Adam is mentioned. So we, we're going to assume it's Jews. Uh, point two referred not only to the Jewish text of Scripture, but the Jewish apocryphal text. And I just got that. That's point B, A and B on the page three. It just referred to that. Uh, three, it would seem that these Jews in, are in churches in Israel. That's, again, that point right here. They're in Israel. But Jude is a traveling preacher or teacher, if we accept what Paul says as referring to Jude, Assyrian Egypt. And also, and again, this is beyond my ability to know and look at the Greek. You know, I can stumble through the Greek letters and some vocabulary. But to be able to say this, I've got to get this from other writers, other commentators. I don't want to say, I don't even say other writers. That makes me sound like a writer. And other commentators make me sound like a commentator. I'll say from the scholars, of which I am not a part. Uh, but the writing is excellent Greek and is in a Hellenistic style. And some of the times the scholars will try to force the book of Jude into a mold or a model of Greek Hellenistic rhetoric style of teaching. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But nonetheless, this letter, and this is important, not important, it's going to be useful, uh, it's written at a very excellent Hellenistic style of Greek. It's not an uneducated author. This person knows how to use their words sharp, quick, and it is condensed. Now, what's interesting now with that is 2 Peter chapter 2 is going to be very similar. But we've already talked about the fact that 1 Peter is written in a different style of Greek than 2 Peter because 1 Peter, Paul, Peter was using a scribe to help him write it, probably edit it and clean up the language. Second Peter, is, people say, is written in very rough Greek. Now, this is amazing, rough Greek, which makes sense because Peter's in prison writing his last letter. He's writing it without the assistance of an editor or a scribe. But you've got Jude and Second Peter chapter 2 that are very, very similar in context. I mean, they flow together. I'm going to show you. But Jude is excellent Hellenistic Greek, Yet, Second Peter is very rough Greek, and so it's, it's just, you can say, well, they're not really copying, because in the very sense of, of communicating the same information, one is excellent style of Greek, and one is a little rougher, which is just interesting to know. Um, and then uh, point five, uh, the recipients could have been Jewish believers living in a Gentile society, thus Syrian Egypt, because again, it has a lot of Jewish references but the sin that is being addressed and the false philosophy, the corrupt philosophies, are Gentiles. Not that they couldn't become Jewish, but you've got this Jewish references, and then the sins sound very familiar to just some very paganized churches uh, that have crept in. So again, that opens up the idea that it is Jews, but they probably are mixed with some kind of Gentile background and has been brought in. And that's what point five a and b is talking about ah the date of writing uh, if you care if you care uh and i i we got to get for me i've got to get this in some kind of framework some kind of the general reference the general the book of jude is written sometime between 40 and 80 a.d that's your that's your window you don't have to accept it some people say it was written in the second century uh but it's it's all you got to remember if you move if you move this too late You've got Second Peter that you're going to have to now discredit because Second Peter and Jude are chapter two of Second Peter and Jude are, are very similar, 
And Peter very clearly is dead in 64 AD. He, he's m- martyred by Nero under the beginning of the Nero persecutions. And so Peter has to be familiar with Jude, or Peter was written first, and then Jude would have improved on it. Now, you've got to either go from the great Hellenistic style of Greek rhetoric writing of Jude, and then Peter tries to refer to it and kind of does a, his own job of imitating it, not, you know, not, not to plagiarize, but he's just trying to communicate the same thought. Or you're going to have Peter writing in a prison on his way to his death in this rough Greek style, and James is going to go, wow, those are great illustrations. Those are great pictures of uh, a communication. And then he's going to write this great book of Jude. So either Peter comes first, and then comes Jude, or Jude writes his great little book here, and then Peter's going to refer to it. Or both of them are referencing another text that we don't know anything about. Or you can go option four, the Holy Spirit led them both to write these things, and that's possible, but it's always nice to have some kind of, you know, the Holy Spirit is just writing a book by nobody to nobody at no time in history. It's nice to have some facts around it. So anyway, 40 to 80 AD is when it's going to be written. If Peter used Jude, then it's going to have to be written between 40 and 63 AD because Peter's dead in 64 AD. If Jude uses Peter, well, you can write it between 64 and 80 AD. I'm going to eliminate this. You don't have to. I'm going to eliminate this because I think Jude came first. So it's got to be written between 40 and 63 AD. Now, when we get through this book, that's point one, two, three. When you get to point four, this is, in, this is important because you, you, there's some crazy issues going on in the book of Jude that are just, they're like, like woke has hit the church, you know, in, in the book of Jude. And the false teachers, it's like, holy smokes, what is going on here? And think that must be much later in church history, except for the fact that you've got Paul writing 2 Corinthians in 57 AD, and I've got a point four under date of writing. I've got that quote. And then when he gets to Corinth in 57 AD, he writes later in that year, he writes the letter to the Romans and says, I want to come see you, but I've got to take this money back to Jerusalem to James and the church to distribute there. And he'll come later. He says, I want to come see you. Now, here's what Paul writes. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 11, verse 15. Earlier in 57 AD, Paul writes, It is not surprising then if his servants, Satan's, masquerade as servants of righteousness. So you've got Satan's servants, and these are ministers in the church, masquerading as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their actions. That's 57 AD. There are people in the church, they're they're working for Satan, but people are accepting them as messengers of God. When he gets to Corinth, he writes to the Romans an amazing verse. He writes one of the problems his ministry is facing, and this is crucial in understanding the book of Jude. And we've all dealt with it in our own thinking. We've dealt with it in our own culture. It's, it, it can't go away, especially because of the message of the grace of God. When you combine the grace of God with the sin nature of mankind, you're going to get this every time. Romans chapter 3, verse 8, from 57 AD, written from Corinth to Rome, Paul writes, and, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. In other words, they were saying Paul's message is 
you can sin, and when you sin, you're going to be forgiven, and goodness will happen. And so, in the end, righteousness is brought about by sinning. The more you sin, the more God's grace is demonstrated, the more righteous, God's righteousness, and your it's like, so sin is not really an issue. He says it's, well, let me read it again. Just listen to the word. It's the NIV translator. I think this is, this is English standard. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. In other words, when you hear, and you can hear people condemning the, the God, grace of God this way if they don't understand it, people are listening to Paul preach, especially you could say, Jews who are used to a law and Paul says you don't have to follow the law you need to accept Christ become righteous in Christ and now the change begins you've got life you've got the spirit you've got the word for transforming your soul and you're going to start conforming into the image of Jesus Christ and all you heard was we don't have to follow a law we're forgiven for our sin and God God just forgives us it's like oh so we just sin and we don't have to do anything we don't have to follow it we can be lawless Paul says that's not what I was saying. But that's what it sounded. That's what we heard. We heard you say it doesn't matter. We don't have to follow any laws. We don't have to have any rules. We just do whatever we want to. And God accepts us just as we are. Right? He accepts you as you are in the intention of changing you drastically into the image of Jesus Christ. He doesn't change you or accept you as you are. Just stay here. Just keep on sinning. The more you sin, the more glory I get. Look how forgiving I am. Oh, look, I can even forgive that. And it eventually it's going antinomianism is going to be the place where the more you sin like this became a teaching this became a philosophy throughout church history the more you sin the more god's grace is demonstrated thank you for that's a terrible sin thank you god can now demonstrate a new level of grace that no one's ever seen before because you're so perverted it's like that became a and that's what that's what is the book of jude is going to be addressing now the point with that being said is this is this is paul's issue in the Gentile churches in 57 AD. He deals with in Corinth. He writes Rome, says, if you've heard this said, it's a slanderous accusation. That's not what we're saying. If you've heard that Paul's preaching this, and there were Jews in Rome, and there were Gentiles that had become Christians because of the day of Pentecost, the church was already started in 57 AD. He just wanted to come to them. So that means the issue that Jude is talking about has already been mentioned in 55 and 57 AD by Paul. It's a church problem in 55, 56, 57 AD already in the book of Corinth or the Corinthian letters. So I'm going to say Jude is writing around 55 AD and I'm going to put an extent of possibly 62 AD because what happens in 62 AD his brother James, the head of the church in Jerusalem, is pushed off the Temple Mount, and James is dead, which may have opened the door or caused the motivation for Jude to start engaging at a different level. That's speculation. That's all speculation. But if Jude now, and, but it's not speculation to say the family of Jesus, you know, his stepbrother, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and that was in the midst of all the apostles. Following Jesus in his ministry, Jesus dies, is resurrected, ascends to heaven, and James shows up at the, you know, the first church service, the day of Pentecost, and becomes the leader of the church. But before that, he was an unbeliever, until Jesus appeared to him and says, well, what do you think now, brother? It's like, oh, and now your brother's resurrected from the dead, looks like God. It's like, okay, I'm in. And, and it would, something like that happened to Jude. But it's amazing that James, 
didn't have to like start washing toilets and sweeping the floor and, and working his way through the apostles. He just like all of a sudden, boom, he's in a position of leadership, James and Jude. And then when James is killed, his cousin or brother, depending on how you want to interpret it, Simeon or Simon becomes the leader. And it stayed, the church stayed in the hands of the family in Jerusalem for several generations. So uh, it would be fitting that Jude, with the death of James, would take up some kind of leadership position, potentially. Nonetheless, with all that being said, I'm going to say this book is being written sometime between 55 and 62 A.D. That, I mean, you, you can argue with that very easily. But that's my justification. It's being written in Israel to Jewish Christians who are in churches that have collapsed under the understanding of the false understanding of Paul's gospel that they don't need a they can forget the law they can live lawless just like a gentile and this is preaching this is preaching and it's sweeping through the church and it's in Corinth already Paul's warning of the Romans about it and that would put it right about 55 57 60 AD that Jude is writing this letter now there's that information that's the date of writing here's the purpose uh Bottom of page three, the purpose. And I'm going to read through some things, but it's to warn believers. It's warning believers. His intention is to warn believers about immoral men that are traveling and teaching false doctrines that are perverting the grace of, of, of God. So this is going to be traveling teachers. And this was common, especially in rural areas. Traveling teachers would come through rural areas. Because, you know, they're, they're just getting established. Uh, a teacher would come through, and they picked up this ideal of grace, but they're perverting this grace into sin. And if you can convince people of this, that opens up a whole area. These traveling teachers have their own area of sin, which a lot of times involves finances and then, you know, immorality. And when they get all this together, if they can allow these people to just continue their sin, you can tap into it, and it's going to call them shepherds who only feed themselves they're shepherds they're not taking care of the flock they're coming to a church near you encouraging you to sin because if i can keep you sinning i'm gonna get more and just keep right on going and that that is and judah's saying what 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 is this going and he's warning the believers of immoral men traveling and teaching false doctrine that pervert the grace of god into a license to sin two Jude's love for the believers. Jude, as a man of God, as a Christian, as a leader, he sees the people being abused, and so he's got love. Now, this love is not like, you know, an emotional thing. It, it's, it's a concern. It's a responsibility. Uh, love refers to like a covenant. He's in, in a ministry, and he's responsible. It's like, I'm not going to let this happen. So he's writing them to warn them, don't let these guys explain the grace of God and let you sin this you're being used you're being toyed with you're, you're like a tool for them to get what they want and so the love that jude has for uh the believers has caused him to warn of the doctrinal and behavioral error that's two things it's doctrinal error and it's behavioral if you can if you can this is basic if you can erode the doctrine you can erode the behavior if you build up the true doctrines the behavior is just going to start to come more Christ-like. The more you teach Christ, the more, if you're convicted by the truth of the Word of God, the more your behavior is going to come in line. 
That's, that's the concept. Or the saying just reverse. If you erode the doctrine, you erode the behavior. If you can erode the behavior, the leadership can get away with more and take more advantage. If you teach the word, the people grow in Christ, the leadership's held to a higher standard and is more under a spotlight. If everybody's looking at the leadership through the lens of the word of God, it's like a light shining on everything you say and everything you do. It's kind of like, I feel like I'm in the spotlight. Exactly, because everybody knows the word. Okay, I'm going to turn the lights down a little bit, let you guys get away with a little more. Now it's a little darker in here. Oh, good. I don't feel such pressure because you're a little bit dumber, a little bit more immoral. I got some room to work with. And that is exactly what's taking place here. Uh, three, it's kind of, I repeated the statement, beware of traveling ap- apostate teachers. That's the idea. Beware of traveling apostate teachers. Remember, John, in, in, in Asia Minor, was sending out teachers, but in Second John and Third John, the churches would not accept John's teachers because they'd accepted false teachers and they'd redirected the churches of John in 8590 AD. So John's men were rejected, and if you opened your house to them, you could be kicked out of the church. Dial Trafies wants to be first, it says, and he'd taken over the church and kicks people out of the church. And John says, when I come, he says, I'll, I'll talk to him or I'll deal with it. And again, John's now, you know, 90 years old. I mean, he's, he's still bringing the thunder. That's kind of cool. He's 90-some years old, and he's still a son, son of thunder. He's still going to be bringing the thunder to this church when he gets there. Uh, that's another story. But nonetheless, point four, besides warning believers and expressing his love and doing his ministry of loving the believers. Number four, he says, begins the book, uh, is to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith. That is his purpose for writing this book because he said, you, you know the book, it starts, he says, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, meaning we're, we're in a very good place, saved by faith in Christ, now we're being conformed into the image of Christ, this salvation is its past, it's present, it's future, we've been justified, we're now being sanctified, we're going to be glorified, we're going to be resurrected, this is a great salvation that we share, what, what do you, whoa, my gosh, no, that you, he said, I wanted to write to you about the great salvation we share, but I felt like I had to write to you to contend for the faith. You're losing it. You don't even understand what I'm talking about because you've lost the faith, and this faith, uh, it, 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 it's, it's the ideal of the doctrine and the traditions. It's the, I'll say, the body of truth. It's the, now this is a scary word, traditions of the apostles. Again, I don't let that freak you out. Uh, it, it's, the, it's the truth. It's the teaching of the truth. Uh, it, it's, it's what we'd say, the doctrines. The doctrines of the Christian faith. So when it says the faith, we're not talking about faith to move a, a, a mountain or uh, you, know, you have faith in Christ. It's what what is this body of information that you believe? What do you hold to? The doctrines, the body of truth, the traditions of the apostles. He's going to refer to that several times. Uh, the teaching of the truth. And so, to contend for the faith, point A, the faith was the doctrine and the traditions handed down by the Lord and his apostles. Now again, they, didn't ha- not, they did not have like a Methodist seminary, a Presbyterian seminary, a Lutheran seminary. They didn't have like little Bibles and, and research books and all these, you know, I, can, I got a whole shelf of theology books down there. And, you know, they have contradictions or they have agreements or you can study it. They just had what the Lord had taught 
and they wrote some of it down. They remembered some of it. They shared it in church. And then the apostles came and, and spread it and reaffirmed it. Paul expanded on it in some detail. These were the traditions of the apostles. But these, these are the things right here. The traditions of the apostles are being challenged. These men, it's going to say, they come in and they, are, uh, they mock it. They challenge it. They, they, they they, they, they break with authority. Now, that's, that's an interesting phrase, right? The authority. It's like a lot of times someone will start a church and they want you to be under their authority. I am now the pastor. You're under my authority. I'll decide. And it's like it comes as like this little cultish-like, you know, authority. Uh, if you're going to be a member here, these are the things you've got to do. You're under the authority of the church. There's a place for all that. Uh, but then you're going to have some places... You read the Bible, I mean, Jude doesn't sound like, he, he's like ripping on some people. I mean, Jude, Jude, let's show a little bit of a submission to the leadership of the church. It's like, he's like saying, absolutely not. They're completely out of line with the truth. It's like, why don't you just submit to us here, Jude? It's like, because you're, you're, you're the devil. I mean, that's why I'm not going to submit to you. Or you go through Martin Luther. It's like, Martin Luther, it, it, Protestant, the whole word means protester. You know, they pro, it's like, you're protesting against some major authority. I mean, it's been authority for 1,500 years, Martin Luther. But yet, he would say that we, as a Protestant, he'd say it was the right thing to do. So that whole idea, these guys, these false teachers that are the apostates are breaking line, rank with uh, the apostles' teaching, uh, the body of truth, the traditions they've been given, the doctrines, the teachings of truth, and they're coming up with their, their own new or new interpretation, and they're losing the faith. That's why John, he says that you contend for the faith. We, I want to talk about how great our salvation is, but if we don't protect this, you're not even going to know what salvation is because you're going to be down here in this new philosophy, and it's basically going to become down to, you know, sinning and, and immorality and, and finances, and it's all completely corrupt. So, uh, Here's two examples of Paul doing the same thing in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 23, and 15, 3. And you can, I've got the words underlined. The word, I received, I also delivered. And this is just a reference to uh, the faith that he's referring to, to receive. If you've got this, uh, I'll just say, doctrine, and Paul received it, or this truth. This, this history. And now, Paul, we think of Paul as, as the Lord appeared to him, him receiving revelation from God, and him writing, you know, Romans and Galatians, and, and uh, you know, Peter saying some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand because he's, he's expanding the understanding of this truth. But it's very clear, Paul, on a couple of cases, he went down and checked with James and Peter and, and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem before he went to the Gentile ministry. It's like, Am I on board with you? Am I, am I still in bounds? And so he was checking with them. So he received doctrine, truth. He received history. Anytime Peter talks about a historical event in the life of Jesus, he received it. He didn't see it. He heard about it. It was explained to him. He goes, oh, okay. And now he's going to explain. When Paul, Peter talks, or Paul talks about the death, uh, resurrection, uh, and ascension of Jesus Christ, it's like, so... What did you think when you saw it? I wasn't there. I just heard about it. So Paul, my point, Paul is receiving these things. 
he's going to receive, R-E-C-E-I-V-E, is that right? That's dangerous. Uh, he's going to receive this as a tradition. Uh, and again, we, we talk about traditions. These are things that are man-made. These are traditions of doctrine. This is what every, if you're a Christian, you're going to accept these things. The death, burial, resurrection of Christ. You're going to accept the details of the Last Supper. You're going to accept these things. Now, once he receives them, now Paul is going to pass them on. And now he's going to teach them. And so he's going to be, he's going to receive the teaching. He's going to pass the teaching on. Now he's going to, add, now I don't want to say add to it, but God is going to give him some revelation of his own because he's an apostle. But here's his two verses out of 1 Corinthians at the bottom of page 3. For I, received from, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And here's what he received. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now that would be an example of a tradition. This is... This is, the, this is what happened. This is what was said. This is what was done. Now, don't change it. Tell it to the next pe- people. And he said, I received it. I pass it on to you. Uh, this uh, next one. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he says, when I came to the Corinthians, what was delivered to me when I got there, it was the first thing I shared with you that was the most important, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. The Old Testament said he would do it. Historically, it happened. I was, it was explained to me that this historical event was the fulfillment of Scripture. I received that truth, and when I got to you, I told you the truth. So it's, it's this handing... That's why it's so easy to be a Bible teacher. It's, what, where, where do you get all your information? Well, how do you prepare your sermons? Well, uh, this is it. Uh, what I received, I now pass on to you. Oh, he's laboring over his sermon. How do you lay? Uh, you, 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 what, you, you making stuff up? Oh, I got to think of something fresh to tell the people. What? What did you just say? I want to think of something fresh they've never heard before. Uh, no, no, what Paul received, he was telling the Corinthians. And that's been going on now for 2,000 years. This is the apostolic tradition. In that sense, like, what you, now again, there's going to be times where we have to interpret and have different ideas. But that is the ministry of the church. Now, again, this is going to cause, again, spiritual gifts. You know, if it's, it's helps or you're going to have to be called to certain things, you're going to grow in Christ. But without this, this way, contend for the faith. If you lose this, you're going to just flip into a social group that's going to just be like, well, we need to do something for the world. Let's, let's build a park. It's like, we'll name it, you know, after, you know, some great person in the community or, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm making stuff up now. Okay, don't make stuff up. <laughs> For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. And that is Paul doing exactly what... what and now, the reason I'm showing you this is Jude is going to talk about people who are rebels. They break rank. They speak against authority. What is this? It's not Martin Luther. Uh, it's not... Jude or the Apostle Paul, it's people that are preaching against this tradition. They, they come against what God has established. They don't pass it on. They're going their own way, and they got their own direction, uh, which is going to lead to chaos in the church. Next page. 
Now, page four gives you a breakdown very quickly. Again, we're not reading through the book right now. But who were these apostates? When you go through the commentaries, they try to figure out which cult it was. It was the early Gnostics. It was some branch down in, in Egypt. And it's like, I, I think all that is way too early for the date we've got for the, the Bible. Because a lot of times, well, there was a group that broke out in Egypt. Well, it's got to be 120 A.D. Well, now you're past the age of the apostles. You're in the second generation, third generation. And so I, I don't think that's it. Even the Gnostics were, were still going to be developing later in the first century and were heavy in the second century. So who these apostates are, I can't tell you a good model from his. This looks like this is them. This is the description. What, you know what it looks like? It looks like this right here. Those who rebel against authority or those who rebel against reality, it looks like this right here. It looks like woke in church is what it looks like. Again, that's not what Jude is saying, but when you read this, like, and when you rebel against authority or reality, you're trying to change everything into a false reality. And here it is. Here's what they're doing. This is right out. This is, this is the 11 points describing who these people are. And I don't know if we can, I don't think we can put a title on them. Denying the Lordship of Christ. You're, you're in the church. These are, these are not, this is not like someone at your church picnic sitting out there on the merry-go-round saying weird things. This is the guy in the front of the church, leading the church, denying the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Practicing unrestrained sinful desires. They're practicing. It's mentioned four times, 4, 8, and 16. This is their, their modus operandi. This is their lifestyle, unrestrained sinful desires. It's as if Christ accepted them as they were, totally depraved, and now that they're in the church in a leadership position, they're now just continue their total depravity. It's as if like, why don't we all be like this? God accepted me the way I am. It's like, yeah, the, the idea was that you're going to change you into the image of Christ, not can leave you in the image of fallen man. Here it is, point three, rebelling against authority. See, three times, 8, 11, and 18. They rebel against authority. And again, be careful with this. We'll go through it and put it in context. But sometimes I, I've reached that. It's like, ooh, that sounds like me. It's like, I should just be more submissive. So when these false teachers come in, just be like, yes, sir, where do you want me to, you know, just do exactly, it's like, but when you see someone rebelling against the truth and you rebel against Satan who's rebelling against the truth, you're rebelling against Satan, but he's rebelling, it's like, you're actually supporting the authority. It's like, you understand what I'm saying? You've got this rank, here is the truth, here is the lie, rebelling against the truth, and here's me. You're, you're breaking authority. It's like, I'm going back up here. And so, yes, I'm rebelling against this authority who's rebelled against this authority, if that makes sense. That's been, that's been a, a self-judgment of myself over the years. Uh, and, of course, you've got to be careful with, with all that. Four, sexually immoral, following their own desires, 16 and 19. Here it is, greedy, shepherding only themselves. They're shepherds, they're leaders, but the only thing they're interested in is what do we get? Uh, they're fleecing the sheep. I mean, it's whenever you've got a power base, there's money, there's power to be taken. They come in to get that power and go to the next town. So they're shepherding only themselves. 
or concerned with only gain for themselves. Verse or point six, they're divisive. They're fault-finding. They're boasting. Again, I would assume that's going to be boasting against the apostolic authority and finding fault with the apostolic authority. Claim to be leaders in the Christian community that had been accepted by Christians, and they had been accepted. So they're not just wannabes. <clears throat> they are in positions of leadership, just like 2 and 3 John. They are in position. John can't get back in the church. John can't get in the church. His teachers can't get in church because we've made some adjustments. We've refined uh, the truth. That would be, that would be the, the rebellion. They're the rebel rebels. Ten, they have nothing useful to offer people. And they abuse the teaching of God's grace to turn forgiveness into a chance to continue in their lawless lifestyle. And that's verse 4. More about the book of Jude right here, and then we're going to re- compare it to Second Peter, and we'll be done. Uh, the book of Jude, Jude uses this, many figures of speech, very colorful, very, uh, very detailed as far as explosive metaphors. He used advanced Hellenized Greek style. The author is very educated. Again, this is stuff that I picked up from commentaries. Jude uses 13 Greek words not used anywhere else in the New Testament. So he's not parroting Paul. He's not parroting Peter. I mean, there's not that many words in Jude. It's a short book, and there's 13 words that appear nowhere else in the New Testament. We're talking Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, by Luke. We got all the way through Paul's writings, and Jude comes up with 13 words. Even after his brother's written a book, he's got 13 words that none of them, no one ever used, including Jesus' brother never quoted saying any of these words. So, whatever that means. And he uses up to 18 groups of three or triads in his writing. Uh, here they are. For identification, he identifies himself as Jude, servant, brother. Who is he writing to? The called, the loved, the kept. He's greeting. His greeting is mercy, peace, love. The apostates, how do you describe them? Godless men change the grace of our Lord. They deny Jesus Christ. Give me some examples of what you're talking about. The people of Egypt, the angels, Sodom and Gomorrah apostates they pollute their own bodies they reject authority they slander celestial beings give me some examples from the old testament uh they've taken the way of cain they've rushed for profit in balaam's there they've destroyed in korah's rebellion characterize them they divide you they follow mere natural instincts they do not have the spirit response how do you respond to this well just like everything else in a triad respond this way be merciful snatch some of them from the fire and others show mercy and then there's a group of four. The apostates are grumblers or fault finders, follow their own evil desires, boast about themselves, and flatter others. And then the imagery he uses, this, this is great. Five images. How do you, what would they look like? They're blemishes. They're shepherds leading only themselves. They're clouds without rain. They're autumn trees without fruit. They're wild waves and wandering stars. And that is how Jude describes these people. And now we come to 2 Peter, page 5, and we'll probably close with this. And I think we've talked about all this as far as that 1, 2, and 3 is, uh, where, where, what is the source? Is Jude the source of this book? I'm going to say Jude wrote this, so I think Jude is the author of this material. Uh, I think Peter copied, not I don't want to say copied, but read it and it was familiar. Anyway, I'm going to read through, I'm going to read 2 Peter 2 right now, and you're going to be able to see, it's like, uh, is that a copy or is he just referring to it he's not copying it um or there could be this other text this other text this 
And when I say a text, maybe it's not a written material or this sermon theme, this material that Peter is familiar with. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's one of the, like the top sermons of the early church. And everybody's referring to this, whoever preached this. Uh, I think Jude came up with it originally, especially since it's written in such great uh, Greek. Uh, but that's my opinion. That's to be decided. Now, what you see right here going down this list you know, obviously on Jude, on the side of Jude, those are the verses. And that's, it's a short book. And then in Peter, does the same thing almost in chapter 2. They both talk about false teachers. The, the condemnation of the false teachers comes from the past. Meaning God said, and we'll talk about it when we get there. But God had said, these guys are coming and they're already condemned. When they get there, I, I told you they're coming. Jesus says false teachers are coming. The apostles said false teachers. I address this in Titanic faith. The early, early on in the church, it says false teachers are coming. Paul left the Ephesian church. says there's going to be men arise from your own rank that are going to now try to use you for their own financial benefit. He leaves. Those men arose in Ephesus. So there's, you know, Jesus and Peter and Paul. All these people are saying false teachers are going to show up. Well, then you get to around 55, 65 A.D., guess what's in the church? False teaching. They're combating. Now, now the apostles are writing, they're com- combating them. First they're saying they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. Then the writing switched to, no, 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 they're fighting at Jude, right at that same time period, combating, contend for the faith. And then as you close the Old or New Testament, you get into Laodicea, you get into those, the seven churches of, of Asia Minor, you get into John's churches, uh, you give in... Uh, Timothy, Second uh, Timothy, Second uh, Peter. It's kind of like the the churches are lost. The false teachers are coming. The false teachers are here. They're combating them. And as the first century closes, it's like the church has been taken over by the false teachers. And so their condemnation was spoken before they even got here. They're going to be condemned. Uh, next one is they deny the sovereign Lord. Interestingly, uh, they both refer to angels confined for judgment. The word is in the, in the Greek is zophos. Peter uses it as gloomy. Jude uses it as darkness. So angels are confined in zophos, which in, in Peter's idea, it's gloominess. In Jude, it's, they're in darkness. They both refer to Sodom and Gomorrah. They both refer to people, these false teachers, reject and despise authority moving on into slandering celestial beings, powers that are uh, under God's authority and not theirs. Angels do not bring slanderous accusations. Both of those say angels do not act like this. They know rank and authority, and those that have broken authority have been confined. Interestingly, when it says angels do not bring slanderous accusations, Jude uses uh, the assumption of Moses as a reference. Peter talks all the way around it, but doesn't say anything about the assumption of Moses reference. Uh, Jude says they are clouds without rain, blown uh, by the wind. Peter says they're springs without water and mist driven by a storm. And uh, they both refer to scoffers following their own evil and ungodly desires. Now, I've got Second Peter here. I'm going to read this, chapter 2. Last time we, did, we read through Jude, and we're going to be spending time in Jude. Um, I, you know, if I was going to do this uh, in an un, unsocial way, I would read all of Jude again and then read all of Second Peter and just let you see it and hear it. But I'm just going to read Second Peter, and just a lot of these things are in, in Jude. Or do you want me to read Jude? Do you want me to read Jude? We got 12 minutes. 
Yep, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the unsocial thing and read. Okay, this is an example of how not to do a Bible class. Uh, I was watching, sometimes you know on, on social media, reels pop up, you know, sometimes it's funny stuff, sometimes it's bad stuff, sometimes it's instructional stuff, sometimes it's, you know, Christian stuff, sometimes it's pastors, clips of pastors, and this guy, and I don't disagree with him, but it's like, it just really just humbled me. He says, you know, pastors, you know, especially young pastors, they need to learn that you've got to have one major point. The focus of your sermon is one point. So when everybody gets done, they all know this was your point. He says the problem I see with a lot of young pastors is they use too many scriptures, too many references, and it's like, it's like you're trying to cover everything at one time, and it's like, what was your point? I had 15 points. And he says, you got to go back to one point. He says, I can tell you when a good pastor is coming, they can sum up a sermon, preach the whole sermon as one point. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm terrible. I'm terrible. <laughs> because I'm like, woo, woo, woo. It's like, oh, I just thought of this. It's like, yeah. And so, yeah. Here we go. So forgive me. I'm going to read 2 Peter chapter 2 to you. But before I do, I'm going to read all of Jude to you. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here's Jude's book again. We read this is NIV. Uh, I like the English Standard Version by reading NIV. Okay, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, peace, mercy, and love to be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. I felt I had the right to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound up in everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel, here's the assumption of Moses, even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning, anim unreasoning animals, these are the very things they, that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's heir. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom, the black, whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming. And this is a quote from the book of First Enoch. Now, again, there was Enoch. He was the seventh from Adam. He did prophesy. That's biblical. But this quote, we get this from the book of First Enoch. 
See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone, to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ foretold. You see, now that, that's where people say, well, it's got to be much later. But the apostles foretold this. But they were foretelling these guys were coming, I mean, right out of the block. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up on your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt snatch others from the fire and save them to others so show mercy mixed with fear hating even the clothing corrupted clothing stained by corrupted flesh here's the end to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault <clears throat> and with great joy to the only god our savior be glory majesty power and authority through jesus christ our lord before all ages now and forevermore amen okay rapidly going into second uh, peter chapter two now again first peter or second peter chapter one he says he's he's going to be giving up the tent of his body but as long as he remains in the body he says i want to remind you of the word of god the whole book of second peter is I, i've got one thing to say don't forget the word of god he said i was on the mount of transfiguration that was cool but it's nothing compared to the fact that you've got what was written by the prophets right in front of you so now it's chapter two i'm going to read through chapter two very quick. Now notice, that was, that was a whole book of Jude. And what Jude does in those short verses is somehow Peter tries, in a sense, to recapture it in a chapter. Again, I, again I'm not sure how. I think he's got to be familiar with Jude's excellent book, and he thinks it's useful, especially in these days. Uh, and Paul, Peter's writing this probably 64 A.D. <laughs> chapter 2 of Second Peter, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They'll secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you. With stories they've made up, their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to, that's the word hell in the English Standard or the NIV, it's, if you look at their footnotes, that's Tartarus. It's not Guiana, it's not Hades, it's not uh, Abyss, it's Tartarus. That's another story. But he sent them to Tartarus, uh, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, and that's also another interesting reference, when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and to make them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed or overpowered by the filthy lives of lawless men, 
for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, though they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. See, that, that's, that's where you, you, should, you should throw in the assumption of Moses. It's the same story, but he just bypasses that whole quote. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasure reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you that's at church with eyes full of adultery they never stop sinning they seduce the unstable they are experts in greed that'd be strategies of financial you know raising funds for some ministry or something you just see they're experts in greed how do we manipulate these people to give us more money they are experts in greed and a cursed brood they have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of balaam son of beor who loved the wages of wickedness but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey a beast without speech who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness these men are springs without water and mist driven by a storm blackest darkness is reserved for them for they mouth empty boastful words and by a appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature they entice people who are just escaping from from those who live in error now again we're not talking about the world we're not talking about hollywood we're not talking about woke culture we're talking about in the church peter's talking about in the church these people show up in your church like a cloud without rain and their whole goal is to just use you and get you back into sin so you're an easier target they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity right there woke right there progressive you know uh uh, uh postmodernism. We, they promise you freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our lord and savior jesus christ and are again entangled in it and overcome they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turned their backs on the sacred command that was passed, notice, was passed on to them, was handed down to them. They handed it down, they turned their backs on it. Oh, it would be better for you not to have heard that. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. And if you look in, in verse 3 of chapter 3, there's one more reference. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And then he goes on, and Peter develops that a little bit. But you can see the similarities uh, in, in those verses, and again, how that all fits together. Uh, it, you, you can say it's just they're both writing the same theme, coming up with the same ideas, but the illustrations are so consistent, it would seem that they're referring to either a common sermon, a common you know message a common tradition 
or Jude wrote something and Peter's familiar with it. Again, this we do not know. We know what's in the text right there. I will pray and we are done. Thank you for being here. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into your word. We do ask that we would be people who submit ourselves to your authority, that we humble ourselves before your lordship and before the Holy Spirit and allow your word to transform our lives. But Father, at the same time, Give us power and strength and wisdom to contend for the faith, to stand against those that would oppose it and to shine light and to help deliver others from the world system that we are surrounded by. Again, we thank you for this opportunity to live at this time. And again, thank you for being with us and giving us salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your time.